Richard, how are we? I'm doing good. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. So I've known you now for a good number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and over that time, anytime we have a chat or a discussion, um, you always drop a new nugget that surprises me about <laughs> your life. So you'll say something random like the time I lived in Iran with the British spies. So, uh, <laughs> really, really random stuff like that. So um, it's true you say that you've lived an absolute fascinating life. I think yeah. I could do a nine part special on you. Um, <laughs> you. But we'll just try and cover the highlights today. And if you want yeah. to come back some other time to cover the, the Iranian phase, then, then we can. We certainly could. Um, <laughs> so, to give the listeners an idea of what you're about, so husband and father first. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, then zero entrepreneur. So you've started a number of businesses, absolutely from scratch, and taking them all the way through to exit. Correct. Um, you're a dive instructor, but uh, it's I am. it's not just a simple diving; it's a rebreather. That's right, trimix rebreather. Yeah. yeah, and that's something I want to speak about later on. It gives me the absolute fear. Um, I watched a, a documentary on cave diving yes. with rebreathers. Very um, very dangerous. Yeah, stuff, yeah. Uh, and that is absolutely my worst nightmare: being stuck in a cave underwater yeah. in complete darkness. So um, all of that stuff is a mental game. Uh, yeah, uh, panic uh, is the killer. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's you've heard. I've heard a few people speaking about that in terms of um, this is almost kind of choose to die in terms of what, what when the panic starts. Yeah. Um, but when you're upside down, you don't know where you are. You're covered in suit and silk. I can understand why people panic. Yeah. Um, and the last one, which is a, a classic example of nuggets I never knew about you until you dropped into a conversation, is semi-professional rock star. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so what's the genre of music I, I was looking at it last night so I'll let you explain well, what we, it is we've defined our own in order to be the uh-huh. biggest fish in the pond but, um, <laughs> we're the grandfathers of industrial dark wave according to our own Wikipedia page the grandfathers of industrial dark wave grandfathers literally of course <laughs> right uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah so um, is that kind of golf stuff it is uh-huh. it, it is sort of in that I mean the, mm-hmm. the rest of the band will say we're not goths. I mean, but uh, yeah. the reality is that if you go to one of our uh, gigs, you're going to see a lot of gothic type people in the audience. And I was having a little nosy uh, on the website last mm-hmm. night. What's the band called again? Sorry. It's called yeah. Attrition. Attrition. Um, I was having um, a bit of a nosy on the website, and some of the gigs that you're doing and tours are quite substantial. No, it, yes, uh, it, it, there's a big difference between um, you know an Ed Sheeran or a Taylor Swift or even <laughs> even anyone that's charting and you know the the bulk of sort of normal music that fits into the more specialist uh, genres. So even though we have thousands of people listening to our music on a daily basis and can easily uh, get a decent sized audience at a gig. Um, the reality is it, it doesn't make a lot of money really. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, if there's a few thousand a month made out of the gigging, which is enough to keep the band going, um, it's a privilege for someone like me to be able to come back to the band after you know, 20, 30 years away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all that money is, is funneled to keeping it going with Martin, the lead man who started it and has been doing it ever since. Um, it, it funds his activity alongside his very successful recording studio. Yeah, not many people get to play in front of lad- large audiences and tour yeah. around Europe and headline yeah. events, do they? So, That's um, right. I mean, it's um, we do generally headline. Mm-hmm. Um, we were recently in Leipzig at uh, the uh, the night uh, the night creatures festival, um, supporting um, uh, Tom Bailey of Thompson Twins. Not quite sure what he was doing there actually, but he was the headline act, 
Uh, we headlined our stage. We managed to cock up the hotel booking and ended up sleeping on Sieg Sieg Sputnik's floor, which is another story. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the gigging side can be quite a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that's um, so. Taking a step back then, um, as I said, you do have a, a bit of a, a fascinating story and we had a brief mm -hmm. chat over the other day. So where's best to kick off? Where do you think the relevant jumping off point is? Um, I would say, um, well, I started life um, in a very ordinary family. My dad was a factory worker. Uh, my mum was mostly a mum doing part-time stuff like Avon, that kind of thing. Um, I was a bit troublesome at school. So they told me to get to a better school. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to the local um, private school. Um, from then I got an engineering scholarship to go to university and that entailed for this particular scholarship, uh, working as a coal miner for a year <laughs> uh, in South Wales. Um, unfortunately that year was 1983. Right as the streaks were happening. Yeah, so I had six months of good stuff and then in February 1984, which I remember very well, um, the strikes started. Um, as an engineering scholar, I was not in the NUM, um, so I was not on strike, uh, although didn't have a lot to do. Um, and we ended up doing basically pit maintenance. Um, and essentially, I was the weekend uh, pump fitter. Uh, so at the age of 18, 19, uh, I was underground just wearing underpants because it was quite warm. So why are, you in, why are you in your underpants? I guess that's a... It's warm. It's warm. I was right. running. Right, okay. Yeah. So running around underground, um, three miles, four miles, and it's quite difficult terrain running mm -hmm. around underground. Um, is it cramped and small or is it, is it quite... Is it's it, big uh -huh. near the pit bottom. Yeah. So maybe 20 feet high mm -hmm. and it's very small. Like sometimes you're crawling uh, when some of the... Especially where the... the the water need pumping out some of the older working so not usable um so you might be standing on a rail uh, you know railway track that's got two meters of water below you uh so the health and safety isn't worth it as no there was no health and safety but the best bit was coming out because i used to ride all the cold conveyors coming out and um uh, that saved me uh, walking but the best bit was as you get closer and closer to the pit bottom the conveyors obviously go faster and faster and faster and uh, the final um, bit goes actually into the bunker so as you come to the bunker there was a great big electrical cable and you used to have to grab that your feet would swing up nearly hit the ceiling and then get back and drop onto the floor. Um, so yeah, health and safety was different in those days. Um, but so I what happened if you missed the cable? You didn't didn't miss the cable. <laughs> <laughs> no, you would end up in the yeah. bunker. Yeah. So did you have to cross a, a packet <laughs> line to do that? Um, well, technically, yes. Uh -huh. um, but of course, the uh, we, we were relied upon to to keep the, the place open. So um, there was the there was a safety manager, an under manager, the mine manager, and then was two lads, basically me and the other guy that was on this uh, this program. Mm -hmm. And we were tasked with all the shittiest jobs you could imagine. I mean, I emptied a, uh, we had a fire hazard down there and I emptied a, a, a sort of a, 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 a transformer the size of a minivan with a bucket. Well, and I had to keep going up, tipping the, it was like being in the army. It was just like stupid jobs that had to be done 
Uh, the NUM obviously weren't doing them. They had skeleton staff in for certain things, but they wouldn't do anything like that. Mm-hmm. So It's amazing what you tolerate when you're young. Yeah. Isn't it when people say, right, you go with a bucket under the ground and empty that, and you're absolutely. Where, where do I start? My skin had a lovely feel to it because of all the oil that I slept <laughs> <laughs> Best moisturiser out. Yeah. Um, so how long did that last then? How, how long were you in well, the coal mines? that was the year off, essentially. Yeah. So it was six months of, of real graft, which was interesting. Um, you know, I went through all of the hazing uh, that you might expect. So I got stripped naked, tied to a pit prop, pit prop um, covered in dirty gearbox grease, um, took my helmet and my lamp, again, health and safety at the yeah. forefront as usual, and then left to crawl out to the end of the end of the heading. <laughs> How long was that? Oh, probably half a mile. Quite dark. <laughs> <laughs> just, was it pitch blackness? Open your eyes, you can't see. Yeah, if you oh. if you're in the headings, yeah, uh-huh. then if you if that's true blackness, so it doesn't matter how long you 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 sit there, you still can't see. Oh, anything. There's no light. There's literally no light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was next after the cool main? Um, so then off to university, fairly uneventful. Studied maths and philosophy, um, but when I finished university, I immediately started a company. So I think I had six weeks with. Thorny MI computer software, and uh, then I decided to, uh, with friends of mine, start contracting, and we were doing um, graphic user interface development, which in late 80s was very innovative, we're using things, newfangled languages like C++, uh, which had only been invented a few years earlier, and uh, the first client server stuff with micro microvaxes running, I think it was Oracle 4, and um, connecting to them with homemade um, SQL uh, connectors um, to give them that client-server experience. Um, That really took off. I ended up getting uh, commissioned by Rover Group to do what was called an illustrated parts list, uh, which was basically a client-server version of their sort of CAD and bill of material. And it ultimately ended up being part of the, the product engineering software for all kinds of sort of top level feature combinations. Um, I was being paid really well, so I decided to start a proper company. Um, the first contracts were were big enough for me to go out and hire half a dozen people. Um, we then got more contracts. Uh, we got more contracts actually with Apple. Um, so I'm quite a big fan of Apple generally. Mm-hmm. They've been very good to me. Um, and then uh, uh, after about two or three years, a hinge point came where um, the software that we'd written for Rover was actually of interest to Computer Vision, uh, who were a big CAD supplier. Um, and uh, Rover wanted to, they were buying about 30 million quids worth of Computer Vision stuff, which in the early 90s was quite a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I think it only bought about 150 terminals, actually, to give you an idea of how expensive this stuff was but um they they wanted that product as a as a trade to give to uh, computer vision and um it was pointed out to me by a very helpful manager inside rover because i naively not twigged this at all but um they, in fact it was mine not theirs because of the way that the contract had been written so i basically traded the product for huge contracts going forward for the next six, seven years, um, 
ended up being worth well over £25 million pounds in total, uh, which again in the 90s was quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And with that, we aggressively grew. So uh, what age are you when this is all happening? It started when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we got that contract about when I was 27, 28. And I assume that given that you'd never run a business before, given that you were kind of, were you meeting it up as you went along? Oh, completely. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was very hippie actually. Right, um, okay. So all the, everybody in the company had shares. Um, we were more Google than Google 10 years before Google. Yeah. Um, uh, we, I, I gave, uh, I think 25% of the company was given to the staff. Um, more was given to my original founders. I had no obligation to do this, but it, it seemed like I wanted everyone with me. We had hired some really, really top draw people. Nearly everybody was older than me. You know, my only claim to fame was having built my first computer when I was about 13. I had senior lecturers from the computer department of Warwick University working with me. We were the technical experts for C++ on ISO and BSI standardization. We had really high academic and I, I, I think I tapped into a vein of, of like frustrated uh, postgrads and academics that were so powerful as a team that you could easily charge them for uh, mm-hmm. like a two-man team as 10 guys. If I mean, we didn't, but yeah. we could have done. Do you not think a lot of these academics sometimes don't know what to do with intelligence? I, it can be true, but mm-hmm. we, found, we found a certain type of academic that really fitted well in the commercial world. We just had to point and shoot. Yeah. And I think if there was one thing that I'd never changed, it was who you hire and how you hire them. Because ta- talent, especially in a services company, but generally in any company, it's it's just the fundamental thing. If you've got the great, great people and they're harnessed with the right objective, it, it manages itself. So what do you think in terms of, you, you said that happy kind of early Google style. Mm. So you've been through a lot, you've built a lot of different businesses, would you still do that now, that type of share the wealth mentality, or have you been burnt? Um, no, I'd you... say it was 100% successful. Right, okay. I would do it again. Right, okay. Um, I've got, uh, we've got a situation in in company that I'm currently with, um, RDB, where we have options like that, and it's it's growing in terms of um, uh, its, its um, uh, value to the business. So it's happening slowly. Um, I I think the idea of giving everybody shares straight away, which is what I did, <laughs> is probably uh, more rash than is necessary. But it's definitely a good way of harnessing, um, you know, core people and, and keeping them focused on what's good for the business generally. So um, that continued to grow then from strength yeah, to strength. Right. To strength. Got strength, strength. We had it for ten years. We got to I think it was two hundred and. 20 people, something like that. Well. And um, by that time, I was completely frazzled. I mean, one of the things that I will say is that I was very uh, single-minded in those days. And even though the kids don't agree, you know, my wife says, well, you didn't really have a dad until you were about six, which, because uh, <laughs> in her mind, I was away, you know, literally the whole time. But uh, that's not quite true. But yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming. Um, by by the time we'd organically grown, even with great contracts, diversity of client base was a key driver as well because you get a huge contract from one company. Do you really have a company unless you can uh, diversify? Um, so, yeah, we'd gone through 
every kind of problem you can imagine. Uh, troublesome management, money problems, growth means you've never got any cash, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very wearing. Yeah. Um, so in uh, 99, we decided to see if we could sell it. Uh, we uh, commissioned an organization to sound out what would be available to us. And uh, we sold it to a consultancy called Keen, uh, which at the time was about a billion dollar company. Um, and ultimately they then sold to, it's now part of NTT. What did, what, how much did it go for? Uh, about 15 million. 15 million. Yeah. So the whole team did well out of yes, that? Yes, everybody got checked. Yes, literally uh -huh. everybody, even the maintenance man, the receptionist, everybody in the company got something. Um, it was not insignificant to anybody. And um, there was a few people that we made some extra grants to because the formula that we'd come up with, you know, in terms of who got what in the share pot hadn't properly uh, Been reflected recognized. it. Yeah. And that's, that's very honest because it'd be very easy to say, well, the calculation's the calculation and that's yeah, what you get. Yeah. Um, but to revisit that and say, well, actually, we think you deserve more. Um, very honourable. So I take it you're, what, early 30s at this point? Yes, that's right. Yeah, finished in finished Parallax in 34. So job done, exited business, sit with your feet up now. and That's right. Sit, sit with my feet up, choose which country to flee to. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> in those days, there wasn't a taper relief or anything. It was quite punitive. Um, tax situation. So um, immediately um, started looking for where to live, where to move the family to. Uh, I think I had um, about a month off and then met some pals from Cambridge who had an idea they wanted funding. Uh, would I help them? So my, uh, my retirement was quite brief. Um, I did have a nice holiday though. Um, so that was the, the the dawn of a Palmer, this, which was like you know second time around. Um, so I went off to San Francisco, meet some friends, um, find some friends and family funding. Mm -hmm. um, we got oversubscribed. We had about I think about a million and a half in the friends and family. Is this another software business? Is it? Yeah. yeah. So a Palmer is it was a well actually it, we we didn't quite know how to apply it to begin with. We had a couple of applications. Um, essentially, a Palmer is uh, what what would now be considered a sort of a stream, uh, a flow uh, query uh, uh, engine, um, but essentially it enabled us to look for multiple um, features in a flow of data. Um, particularly, we had a big application in finance. So look at flows of news information, stock information. So all the factors that often have impacts on stock price. So there's a report comes out from the farmers, whatever, and that affects the stocks of anything to do in the supply chain of farming. And you can watch in real time for these things to happen. And algorithmic trading was also nascent at that time. So this was like a big, big deal. Um, we also came up with um, with a with a sex application. <laughs> um, so this was like a, an early, uh, like a Tinder type thing. Right, okay. So, um, okay, so there's no smartphones. This is 1999, 2000. Yeah. Um, so you might have a WAP phone, which was sort if of- If you're lucky. Yeah, well, if you're in Japan, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so anything that you did with phones had to be server side. There was no way of getting the phones to do anything. So um, the dating app that we came up with was server side, 
uh, location sensitive, very early location stuff. So you're in the same cell kind of thing. So Tinder, what's that, 30 years before Tinder existed? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Uh -huh. um, and we had a working model of it that was like a Sims world where the people with all their preference, their dating preferences were like, you know, horoscope, age, gender, things like that. Um, basically, what we were doing on the server side, which is a, uh, if it is obviously a, a non-polynomial problem normally, uh, was um, uh, telling if they got within range of one another and we also had adverts in space that you could sort of walk near. So if you were in the same cell as a McDonald's, you could get a voucher from McDonald's, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we, we managed to get real interest from uh, a couple of big investors. So um, our stars were Herman Hauser and Andy Hopper, who are the sort of the founders of Arm, and of course before that BBC Micro. Mm -hmm. So these are luminaries in our industry, Sir Herman as he is now, um, really nice chap. And we gave a presentation in, in Cambridge, and uh, the I think it was in the loo actually. Um, Herman said, oh, I, I hear, you know, Andy in uh, San Francisco has given you quite a lot of money. We said, well, sign me up for the same. <laughs> and I thought, have I just raised half a million quid in a loo? <laughs> but of course I had. And um, yeah, in that audience was um, representative of Philip Anschutz, who um, at the time was, I think, the fourth richest American. Well, And uh, they, they just wanted all of it. I... I didn't know what I was doing, truthfully, but I said, look, I'm sorry, we've, we're oversubscribed, you can't come in. And it turned out to be the right strategy because actually we got 10 million off them in the next round. <laughs> <laughs> and then ultimately they um, they became part of Carlisle. So the, the actual people we exited with um, to progress software about um, four or five years later, um, it was 35 million, I think. 35 million? Yeah. So that's your second exit? Yeah, but my share was tight. Right, that okay. one. Yeah. Uh -huh. We did make money, though. Um, but uh, yeah, that uh, was Carlisle that actually helped us see that. And it, despite being the evil empire in some people's eyes, they, they're actually a very good partner yeah. because they have real power. <laughs> so that's your, your second exit? That was my second exit, yeah. yeah. So what's next? Uh, then I did actually have a bit of time off. And that's when I really accelerated the diving. So I'd been um, doing diving um, primarily in the UK, I actually dived Sound of Mull. So my first real holiday in Scotland uh, was all underwater. Didn't see <laughs> anything really apart from the wrecks. Some people say it's always underwater <laughs> with, uh, with the rain. So. <laughs> yeah, that is true <laughs> to some extent, uh, especially this side. I think it's drier on the other side. Yeah, it certainly is. I still wouldn't leave uh, the West Coast though. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I uh, decided to to really get into the diving. So just uh, was that a hobby? Yeah, uh -huh. it, it's just a thing. I've I, I first scuba dived when I was sixteen, and uh, didn't get properly. Oh, and also also my honeymoon, we did some diving in the Indian Ocean, uh, and then later uh, we got more into it. Got dry suits. Got more into the falling off a rib in bad weather kind of diving. Because um, believe it or not. You know, west coast of Ireland, the west coast of Scotland is amazing diving. It's, re it's really beautiful. Loads of wrecks. Lots of life on the wrecks. Um, but I got really into it and thought, right, this is, I'm doing diving now. So you, you've got a couple of different types of diving, I'm sure. But the rebreather, that's basically where you're recirculating 
That's right. Your own carbon monoxide, aren't you? And it's using a, some sort of yeah. chemical reaction. Or that's right. Yeah. Um, again, when I was watching the the horror show about uh, people doing cave diving, mm. um, one of the big risks they say with that is because the, the the computers are so complex, mm -hmm. you might not actually know if you're getting starved of oxygen. Yes, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of technology in a in a closed circuit rebreather. Um, why would you why would you use that? Is it does it last longer? Or is it less yeah, bulky? Immensely longer. Yeah. Right. There's there's a couple of there's well, there's a number of advantages. Um, the the first one is that you're going to use a fraction of the actual gas. So if you think about it, when you go deeper, your the, the the air is under pressure. Air is compressible. So at ten meters, your lung actually has twice the volume of air in it mm -hmm. than it would if it was at the surface because you've gone from one atmosphere to two atmospheres so it doubled it up. Um, which means that the deeper you go, the shorter uh, amount of breaths, you the fewer breaths you've got out of a tank. Um, so if you're going quite deep, um, you know, beyond recreational uh, levels, two things happen. One is you um, you run out of gas very quickly, um, second, which is not what you want. But secondly, the amount of time you're obliged to stay in the water gets exponentially longer. So, you know, a half an hour dive at 45 meters is going to keep you in the water for a good 45 minutes. Is that to stop the bins? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, you've got to let the, 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 the gas that you would get, say, when you open a can of Coke, mm. you don't want it to come out that quickly. You want it to come out very slowly so you don't get those bubbles. Um, so that's one benefit. The other benefit of a closed circuit rebreather is that it mixes your breaths to be optimal for that depth. So you actually set um, an amount of oxygen that you want in your breath. Uh, the reason is to reduce the amount of decompression you need. There's a little bit of science going on here, but uh, essentially it stops your, uh, it optimizes your breaths for your decompression requirements. So is it stopping your breathing then? So if you, so if you try to take 10 big deep breaths, does it not let you do that? No, it will let you do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, that, that's fine. What it, what it is doing is it's actually got two, there's two gases. One is called a diluent, which is normally air, but it could be something else. And the other one is oxygen. And basically it mixes only the oxygen that you've uh, actually metabolized into the, into the loop. So normally if you breathe in, you'll only metabolize 3% of the oxygen that you've actually taken in. Um, so what it's doing is just putting that little tiny bit in. So you'll hear the valve going pss, 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 every now and again. Mm -hmm. It's just adding that bit that your body's actually metabolized. Um, if you're at a, at a constant level, you don't produce any bubbles at all. You're only producing bubbles when you're changing level generally going up. You might exhale a few bubbles but um, so it basically means you stay down longer with a smaller obligation when you actually uh, uh, go up so and it can be quite dramatic you could be in for hours on a long dive a three hour dive you might get out an hour or two before someone who isn't on close circuit and you've done the dive without taking god knows how many extra tanks with you yeah carrying them about with you exactly so the the failure limits are incredibly small. With that, you, there's no a, a lot that can go. There's a, a lot that can go wrong, mm. and when it does, I would imagine it happens quite quickly. So, when things start to malfunction or something's no, mm. not going quite right, you've said it earlier on. It must be a mental challenge not to yeah. instantly panic. 
So what what's the mindset? So you're you're doing I take it things do go wrong when you're doing with that, that yes. type of equipment. Yeah, you have to yeah, I mean it's all about training. I mean obviously I was a coal miner. I've got a thing for this sort of like dark black spaces. <laughs> I mean, the coal mining was a thousand meters down. That's uh, far, far, far deeper than you can go in the water. Uh, but um, no, it's about training. And uh, I had an amazing uh, technical dive trainer um, who was ex-marine, and uh, he was he did things that were with me that were way more than is required to simply tick the boxes. So um, he would always tamper with my equipment, make it dangerous, turn things off. Etc. To put me in a situation where I would have to, um, you know, deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously he's there. We're not at mm-hmm. sixty meters with a, you know, a uh, big obligation. His mantra was, you know, when we're planning a deep dive, at this point in the dive we become dead. That was his mantra. If we then execute all of the following things correctly, we have the chance of becoming alive again. And that was a very Good that, way of thinking it, about it. It totally switches it, doesn't it? In, <laughs> it ter- does. in terms of yeah. the, the assumption is you're dead. Yeah. Um, nah, however, yeah, yeah, that's right. If you execute this carefully, perf- you should get out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the reality with the complex equipment is that if you don't panic and you've been trained well, you actually have many layers of fallback. I mean, you know, in a normal scuba equipment, you actually have like only one or two areas of failure and then it is actually game over. Uh Uh, Whereas rebreathers can be driven in lots of different ways to get you out of a situation. You have got up to 10 hours of gas on a rebreather. So if you get stuck or... Yeah, Uh but it is, the, the best analogy is if it goes wrong, it ends up being a bit like Apollo 13. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not a quick end. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did you ever do any any cave diving? Uh, cave only very very small caves. So cave diving is one of those things where I think I'll take a pass. Uh-huh. Because I do think it's extremely dangerous. Yeah, no, absolutely. It gives me that absolute horror. Yeah. Um, so, how long was the the extended vacation? Uh, I think it was about three or four years. Oh, it, wow. came, it came in in two parts. Um, so, part one was about three plus years and then there was another part of a couple of years more recently but um yeah i got itchy feet though and uh and ended up uh, doing a startup with some friends in the us um they wanted me to to launch their us business and uh, get it was was that um, software again it, no this wasn't this was uh, actually uh, a packaging um uh, product. It was a biotechnological innovation that had, uh, I mean, now we know that you can get biofilms and bio this and bio that, but this was when there weren't those things around. This was two, 2003, where it was a real novelty. Um, and um, they wanted to launch in the US. So uh, I said, yeah, I'm looking for something to do in the US. We're looking for an excuse to do something. And uh, so I went totally out of my comfort zone. And um, we had a tremendous success. I did it for about three, three and a half years. We started it from nothing. Um, I did put uh, cash into it, but did it essentially as an organic self, uh, self sort of um, uh, funded startup, really, and had a few guys. We ended up doing incredible installations all over the US because uh, there was quite a lot of stuff that you had to, apart from the machinery and the, uh, the the chemicals and stuff that went into the product itself, there was also an infrastructure that needed to go in. So uh, that was fun. Actually, 
worked quite hard in some warehouses reminded me a lot of cool means exactly yeah. yeah well i think it's important to be able to do you know the physical stuff absolutely it's you know whether it's gardening or you know diving maybe um it, i do enjoy that kind of thing um so it was intense um 100 plus um flights a year really crazy travel experience uh we won some great contracts um, biggest one was uh, the Office Depot warehouses, which were all over the US. And that, that was a, a three, four month implementation. Really, really tiring. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, we did, uh, we did manage to negotiate a sale to a uh, Florida-based um, uh, film manufacturer, because film was a major comp component of this, uh, this product. So a film uh, manufacturer made sense. And... Um, we did the deal, they did the due diligence team, came over, we had a big celebration uh, just before Christmas. And uh, when we came back after Christmas, our team of negotiators uh, were unavailable. And three months later, three weeks later, they'd, they'd all been fired. Oh, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that deal actually, you know, when you sit down with lawyers and they say, look, we're not being difficult, but honestly, these things can go wrong. Yeah, you think, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, how likely is that? Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out if you do it often enough, it becomes <laughs> quite likely. <laughs> but uh, so that was, um, it was one of, it was, it was like not quite the failure I needed because as, as I think you probably know, um, success is a terrible educator. You, you do know some of the things you did right, but you've you've don't realize the things you did wrong you got away with yeah and um, you learn more from feeling absolutely and no you remember it no question yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of like what i would call qualified success did i lose money yeah bit um did uh, uh did, what was it successful well it was and it wasn't it wasn't what i wanted hence we we decided to stop doing it um and they're still still over there but uh so uh, the, the, you didn't sell again after that, or didn't? No, no. I, I actually was um, very frustrated and uh, decided to go and initially have another bit of a break. Mm -hmm. um, that was that was the goal. Did they buy um, you, or, or did you just walk away? I just walked away. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, do they still owe me something? <coughs> Maybe. Uh <-huh. laughs> I wasn't bothered at that time. Um, family wanted different things as well, so that must be incred incredibly hard if you're 100 flights a year, rolling your sleeves up in factories. I'm sure you'd have been leading a lot of the sales and negotiations, mm -hmm. um, thinking you've got your third exit. That falling through, then just deciding, do you know it's not worth it? Yeah, it's. Um, it was. I mean, there's a point. Sometimes when I look back on on life, you realise that you are different people at different times. So, you know, the person that I was at the various points in, in Parallax, not the same person as in, in Apama, not the same person as in Greenlight, you, you're changing. And some of those, those positive experiences reinforce things that are good, and some of them reinforce things that are bad. Um, so there's a type of thing that I don't let myself do anymore because it's bad for me. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, I, I don't let myself get too bored. Because that's when I come up with evil plans that that sometimes don't. <laughs> you don't work. do boredom well. I don't do no. boredom. No, right. a bit too high energy for mm -hmm. that. I think whole of the family would uh, like me to be a bit more boring, but not dangerous with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So we went uh, back to Europe, and um, uh, we were living in Spain. Um, 
And uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do more diving. I'm going to be a bit of a dosser. I take it at this point you're independently wealthy. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I mean, it, I, it's, uh, I mean, I don't need to work, mm -hmm. but I have got things that I need to put right, mm -hmm. uh, which we'll talk about now. So um, when I got to Spain, I thought, well, I don't know, I'll buy a business and one that's not too energetic or difficult and uh, it can fund an amazing lifestyle and I'll spend the next eight years with the kids and it'll be great. And it just went completely wrong. So the first lesson was, I, I mean, any fund manager will tell you this, you can always make money when you're riding a trend. So if the market is a little bit bull, every single uh, fund manager is gonna make money. But when it's not, that's when most the really good ones some shine, of them isn't money, it? But yeah. most of them will just not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first lesson is it doesn't matter how good you are, how clever you think you are. And there's loads of people that are cleverer than you, better than you, that are just not in the right place at the right time. And so luck and timing are a huge factor. And the more I reflect on, you know, the people that I come in contact with, yes, some people are wildly successful. Some people are really good, but not as successful. And th there may be nothing to choose between them other than time and place. A lot of bad luck. Absolutely. Or, or bad luck. Works both ways. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so buying a um, retail business in 2007 was not a very good so idea. A shop? No. We Supermarket? Were, no, no, we were importing containers of uh, products with cash um, from the UK and Europe and distributing them to national supermarket chains. And it cost me an awful lot of money when 2008 happened. Um, if I'd been in the UK, probably wouldn't have been so bad. But Spain has some really weird laws. And we ended up with a lot of zombie uh, customers where we could really not get paid except by giving them more stock. And because I'm... So you needed them to sell the stock so they could pay you? Yeah, except that of they course, didn't you. of course they didn't. Uh -huh. yeah. And the the legal system in Spain, I don't know if it, I mean the, the situation in Spain was the worst in Europe, mm -hmm. I think, um, because of the way that the finance works over there and the way that the legal system works. You are stuck, essentially, with not really any recourse. I mean, you've got years, up to ten years, to wait for uh, debt enforcement. I ten mean, years. Yeah. Well, three for as minimum, absolute yeah. minimum. So why would you pay? That's right. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Yeah. yeah. There mm -hmm. was no incentive. I mean, we did manage to get, um, I mean, we got into stupid situations where we were trading buildings to get paid. Okay. So we got a block of flats once, <laughs> <laughs> which it turned out where there was a problem with the permits on. And then we had another lawyer in there sort of trading with, I mean, it was just, just a complete nightmare. You can't, you, you cannot make it up. Um, what happened, it was like getting up every morning and thinking it'd be a great idea to set fire to another bonfire of cash. Um, but so did you have all your cash locked up in this from the start? No, not all of it, but uh, I, I made the tragic mistake of not calling it quits when my wife told me to. Yeah. And um, for which, you know, women have good memories for certain things. They do, yeah. And uh, yeah, so had I simply stopped on whenever it was in September 2008 and said, well, sod it, you know, let, let the let the process uh, un, un, unfurl, then we'd have been much better off. I always remember speaking to um, 
a serial investor who put a lot of money into different businesses and a business was going under, it could have been saved with a little bit more cash. Everyone thought, yeah, give that cash more business. And his answer was sometimes your first loss is your best loss and let it go. <clears throat> Yeah. And lost his money. Exactly but, uh, right. The minute you stop your losses, you got a chance of profit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, you kept going, you kept yeah, on chasing it? A couple of years, mm -hmm. yeah. It was an absolute nightmare. Uh -huh. And um, and what made you stop then? What what happened? It ran out of cash? Um, ran out of the will to live, I think. Um, no, we pulled it quits and uh, moved back to the UK. I mean, Amanda had moved back. Uh, there was a, a personal tragedy meant that she was um, uh, in the UK. I was actually away from her. Uh, one of my kids had gone to boarding school uh, in the UK. The other one was at home, um, a bit distressed with the whole situation and really helping me a lot. Um, only 15, bit of an interesting one for her mm -hmm. that age. Um, but yeah, we were on our own, the two of us. Uh, my wife was looking after a friend who was dying. Um, it was like, oh God. So, you know, eventually you just got to say that this enough. is enough. Yeah, this is enough. So um, yeah, so we went. I went back to the UK. Um, so going from having a life of excitement and success, it's, mm -hmm. it was. It sounded like a, a roller coaster with mainly ups. Yeah. The, the early part of your life. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there was ups and downs along the way, but the, the overall trajectory was an upward one. Mm -hmm. um, then it sounds like you had a a massive big retrograde step. Yeah, uh, yeah. all the way down. It's uh, very damaging to you when that happens. And you and you start to put that context into place, um, and you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, well, even if you've—I I don't think I'm a particularly uh, braggadocious kind of guy. It's very factual what's happened to me, but um, whatever I thought I was uh, was now something else as well. Mm -hmm. And that's when the real education uh, comes in. I think my—it um, took me—it's taken me years. To, to sort of reflect that whole process. Uh -huh. to, to compartmentalise it. It was uh, one of the guests we had on last week, a, a chap called Paul. Um, he went through a similar process, built a business and, and ended up losing it. And one of the things that you, you kind of touched on as well, was a, it was really interesting to hear him say that he actually ended up, he didn't know who he was and he couldn't trust the decisions he was making. Yeah, that's exactly he'd always right. Because he'd always bet himself. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, who he thought he was wasn't the person he was. That's right. To him. Yeah. And every decision. Um, so I, I take it you are in a similar... I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, the uh, if you're a serial entrepreneur, you're quite comfortable with risk. Mm -hmm. If you're a coal miner, if you're alone underground, if you're a uh, you know an extreme diver... You're okay being in your own head. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. To me, it'd be fine. You know? uh -huh. So, I mean, that's one of the fun things about diving, actually. The diving I did, you don't have a buddy. Mm -hmm. And uh, my marine uh, instructor said that the, old, the, the the knife you have is not to cut you out from fishing lines. It's actually to stab your buddy with if he comes after your gas because you'll both die. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. But yeah, I mean, that reflection uh, period, I suppose it's not, it's probably still ongoing because it's changed me into a different type of person. I now look at mm -hmm. things quite well, when differently. I, when I was speaking to Paul, he hand on heart says he doesn't regret that chapter of his life. Do you regret it? Not in the least. No. And and that's the interesting thing. It's Which I always find amazing. Well, it's because that's when you learn everything. Mm -hmm. You know, um, accidentally getting a twenty-five million pound contract from Rover Group because you didn't know what was in the contract, but 
some guy did is what did that teach you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it taught you that 25 million quid is apparently quite easy to get um, because you know okay there was great technical work in that product to make well, you it didn't, valuable you didn't mean the structure of the contract that ultimately no, led to your uh -huh. yeah, exactly that was good lawyers mm -hmm. I mean it, it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't innovation really uh, at that level um, so no it's, it's where you learn everything about yourself is when you, you are that miserable and um you know, there was a period where we really were hard up because we, I mean, you know, when you're living in multiple houses in multiple countries with kids at boarding school, you can be quite well off and still feel the serious pinch. Yeah. And uh, and, and there was certainly a period when that was the case, when I was thinking, shit, school fees. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, is, it, is a, it is what defines me now. I don't, I don't recognize myself, mm -hmm. actually, if I go back to... I say what made me great in Parallax, I would say time and place. And you seem fairly comfortable talking about it now. It's, it's clearly... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm very happy with... I can say life. to yeah. my current partners, you know, the business we've got now is great. We've, we've grown, I don't know, 400% in the last uh, five, six years. Um, and I can sit... With, and these are people that were in Parallax with me, strangely enough, in the 90s. So I've known them for over 30 years. See, that, that's why we call it full circle because you normally always come back around to yeah uh -huh. yeah I mean when when I came back I mean I had a, a sort of a, a thing in um, uh, in uh, India and Dubai as well and when I came back from that uh, that sort of startup the um, first thing that Phil said was you know what are you doing you've got to come you've got to come and see me and uh, we were, he, it was a small company that had some big setbacks at that point. Some big customers have gone with CityLink, for example, have gone bust on them, uh, owing a lot of money. And um, uh, IBM, so if IBM partners, had uh, offered them a, some sort of business development package, marketing package, where um, they could pay for a mentor uh, from the business. Now, I'd had uh, lots of relationships with IBM uh, back in the Warwick uh, days when, of Parallax. Um, so IBM essentially paid for me to work with uh, Phil and Sue for, for two years. During that time, we, we really got a crack on uh, with RDB. And um, since then, it's just gone from strength to strength. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where I, I met you from. That's Our, right, Ard a few years ago yeah. we met. <laughs> RDB, so um, no, great business, um, especially in the Oracle space. Um, yeah. When it comes to Oracle, there's a lot of people have had their fingers burnt financially with Oracle oh, yes. audits. Um, yeah. It's a very litigious company when it comes to the enforcement of its licensing model. I guess rightly so, it's its own IP and yep. what it does with it, it's up to that. But um, where we found RDB services really useful is saying there is another way to do this. There's fundamentally another way that you can still stay 100% compliant with what you're doing. Um, you just need to think a little bit differently. Yeah, you do. And um, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, Oracle is is by far um, the the best target for us, but obviously we cover all kinds of managed services. Um, not meaning to make it into a plug for the business, but... <laughs> oh, why not? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, we, we cover everything from, um, you know, operating system, the full application mm -hmm. stack. It's a it's a proper professional service. So that's that's what's good about the business. Um, yeah. Your techie people are exceptional. Yes. Um, some of them are quite odd. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but exceptional. So when we're coming with solutions, and it's funny, um, we we sell quite a lot of your services, and it's the one thing when we speak to a customer if they have Oracle, and you say we could have a look at this with our other services. Half the customers go well, maybe later or not just now, mm. but they always go. Oh, right. Yes. Uh huh. So, uh-huh, yes. We we don't like that bill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it must be like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, can be. I mean, yeah. there are there are nuances, but mm-hmm. yeah, essentially, we do find ourselves often not competing for the mm-hmm. business because of the level of specialization of what we can do. But on the other side, we have got more than one case study with ninety five percent savings. Mm-hmm. Which is sounds like bullshit. But no, it's, it's not. not. It's not. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's fundamentally not. So, um, what's what's next for you then, Richard? So, it's, uh, um, not well, to get bored. Uh-huh. Um, so, obviously, uh, obviously, more 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 rock star gigs. Mm-hmm. We've got a nice castle festival coming up next year. Um, but no, what's next? Uh, RDB has uh, grown to, I think, about thirty one or two people. I'm not sure. We don't keep sort of score that easily uh, we've just opened uh, an office in India in Hyderabad well uh, which is giving us some options I mean that's frustration actually with UK um, hiring practices but we have had customers actually in South Asia and in uh, the Middle East as well um, so that does sort of open us up a little bit more to international space um, at the moment uh, we had a plan to uh, to seek funding and accelerate growth, and actually, organically, we're doing all right at the moment. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's right. I mean, yeah. once you get other people in, then you're exposed to many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in a Palmer, we had one down round. Don't have down rounds. Yeah, <laughs> don't lose control. Oh, all the all the contracts get torn up, and mm-hmm. the new guy writes what he likes in there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so um, yeah, organic is the way we're going. Organic, nice one. Um, you know, uh, Sue keeps saying, "Can we can we have a fixed number of customers as a maximum? Because it's quite onerous." Because <laughs> we do have a partner that has a hundred customers, and yeah. they don't want more, uh, which is an interesting model. Um, but uh, so far, so good. Good, excellent. I really appreciate you coming, Richard. I know you've driven a, a long way to be here. I didn't yeah. realise it was two hours. Um, so, <laughs> thanks very much. It's a pleasure. <laughs>